Who is this Jesus that we worship? Why does the church and Christians consider him to be the Son of God? Caroline, in the video, expressed the difficulty, I think, of this question quite well when she says, I find it a little presumptuous to think that man can be God. So this whole concept of Jesus being totally human and totally God at the same time is a major point of doubt for many. I understand that. This, this is deep stuff. As a matter of fact, I'll be, I'll be real honest with you. I have wrestled with this sermon this week because there is so much here and so little time to put it together. And so I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions this morning. I hope I don't just muddy the water more. So just grab on, all right? Let's, let's dig in. The crowd had gathered at the Jordan River to hear this rather rugged, woodsy preacher by the name of John the Baptist. He was baptizing people at the Jordan River um, as, a, as a sign of repentance. On this particular day, Jesus and his disciples show up on the banks of the Jordan River as John was preaching. And John looks up, sees his second cousin. Yes, he and Jesus were second cousins. And he points to him and he says, look everybody, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus then, as an act of obedience before God, submits to baptism by John, even though John objects a little bit. And when Jesus is coming up out of the water, the heavens open, and, and not only does this, the, the dove, uh, the Spirit, descend on him like a dove, but there's the voice of God out of heaven that says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Thus began Jesus' three-year ministry. Now, there's this tight bond between Jesus and John the Baptist. But as a matter of fact, Jesus actually has this to say about John in Luke chapter 7. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. I mean, these, there is this tight relationship. There's this deep respect. But several months pass. John is thrown into prison because he confronts Herod, King Herod, about King Herod's affair with his sister-in-law. And Herod doesn't like it, so he throws him into prison uh, and is probably going to do something about that down the road. And so it is while John is in prison that he begins to be overwhelmed with doubt. So he sends two of his disciples to Jesus, because he can't go himself, he's stuck in prison. Sends two of his disciples to Jesus and asks this question. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Wait a minute. The, the, the John that said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This same John says, are you, are you really the one? Or, 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 or have I missed the boat here? Are we to wait for somebody else? Yes, it was that same John. Was it the condition of the prison or was he in a period of depression or melancholy that caused these doubts to arise? We are told. I can tell you these were honest doubts. And Jesus does not respond with, ah, I can't believe John of all people would send you with such a question. John knows better than this. No, 
Jesus quotes from a prophecy of Isaiah 700 years before that everybody in Judea who was listening would know this prophecy points to the Messiah. These are the things that are going to happen when the Messiah comes. And the prophecy reads like this. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, evil spirits, and gave sight to the many who were blind. This is where Luke quotes the prophecy. So we replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Now, was Jesus offended by John's doubts? Not in the least. You remember that great statement that he made about John when he said, I tell you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. Do you know when he said that? He said that after he sent the messengers back to John with this response. He turned to the crowd and said, I'm telling you, John's a great man. Jesus, was never, Jesus never lost faith in John. And Jesus never loses faith in us when we struggle with our honest doubts. Now, my desire in this whole series of messages is not to somehow diminish the reality of our doubts in so little time of a sermon to provide enough evidence that you walk out of here with all your conflicts resolved. That's not my goal. Nor am I trying to suggest that with enough evidence, you won't even need faith. That's not my goal because that will never happen. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith is indispensable to our Christian faith. Faith is indispensable to every aspect of life. Folks, every world religion, every world view demands an element of faith. Even if you consider yourself an agnostic or an atheist, there's faith involved in that. There's faith to say there can't be a God. So faith is indispensable in our spiritual journey. What I'm trying to do in this series is help us avoid blind, unreasonable faith and doubts that we embrace without researching them out. Now, of all the issues that we've discussed thus far in this series... This one's the toughest one for me so far. The matter of who Jesus claimed to be and whether or not it is true is the most difficult thing for our mind to grapple with. How, how can he be totally man and totally God? How can he be the son of God claiming to be God? That's a tough one. And I, and I readily admit it this morning that, I, that we cannot explain that totally to our satisfaction as human beings. So, the answer to that question is going to end up requiring faith in the long run. But, I, but let's take a look at it this morning and, and let's explore some questions that often come up and, and see how we can maybe approach some of these questions. Here's the first one. Did Jesus really claim to be the Son of God? The simple answer is yes. Matthew said, you know, or, or, excuse me, Matthew records that Peter said when they were on the road to Caesarea Philippi, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you're right. Blessed are you, uh, Peter, Simon, son of John. My father in heaven gave you that answer. And then, of course, Thomas, we talked about him a couple weeks ago. Thomas, when he saw the risen Lord, finally said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, whoa, 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 that's over the top, Thomas. No, he didn't say anything like that. He embraced that confession because it was true. 
But two of my favorite passages um, come from the Gospel of John. Uh, in the first, the religious leaders have accused Jesus of being demon-possessed, and Jesus defends his actions. <laughs> and then, as Jesus often did with the religious leaders, he just kind of ratcheted up the conversation a notch or two, and he said something like this. He said, you know, your father Abraham, and of course Abraham was the greatest to the, to the Jewish nation at that point in time, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad, and they said, ah, Gee, really? You're not even 50 years old, and, and you've seen Abraham? Come on. Well, it was the perfect opening, and Jesus walked right through that open door, and this is what he said. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And you say, whoa, that's pretty bold for poor grammar. I mean, what Jesus said is not grammatically very sound, but to pick up stones to kill the guy, I mean, that's a little bit over the top. This isn't about the grammar, folks. It is about what Jesus said when he made that proclamation. If you remember the story of Moses in the Old Testament, when God calls him to become the deliverer, to go into Egypt and deliver the people who are caught in bondage, Moses is trying to get out of it, okay? Got all kinds of excuses, and Moses said, I don't know who to say has sent me. If I get down into Egypt and they say, well, who sent you? I, I don't know your name. And the Lord responded, he said, you tell them I am has sent you. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? Before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus adopts the name of God, the personal name of God in this statement. And that's why they picked up stones. They were going to put him to death for blasphemy, claiming as a man to be God. Then two chapters over in John chapter 10, the religious leaders try to stone Jesus again. And Jesus says, well, for what one of the miracles are you stoning me? And their response is, we're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So, did Jesus claim to be the Son of God? Did Jesus claim to be God in the flesh? Yeah, yeah, he did. That was his claim. So here's the next question. How did Jesus back up such a bold claim? Well, Old Testament prophecy certainly set the groundwork. Uh, now, we've just come through the Christmas season where we most often hear these passages from Isaiah read. Isaiah 7:14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Do you understand the import of that? This, this child will be God with us. God in the flesh. Again, in chapter 9, verse 6, it says, And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So, the expectation of the prophets of the Old Testament was that when the Messiah came, you bet, he would be God in our midst. Then we have the recorded miracles of Jesus as in answer to John's question. There were healings, life-changing preaching. There were resurrections. He walked on water. He calmed the storms. He just did all manner of things. And I know what you're thinking. If, if you've got doubts, you think, well, wait, yeah, but wait a minute. That's what the Bible says. I'm not even convinced that the Bible is the Word of God, even though we talked last week about its reliability as history. It, I can't go back and prove that he walked on water, and I can't prove that he raised the dead or healed the sick. I can't prove that to you. But that, if he is God in the flesh, then these things would certainly be possible. 
Even the enemies of Jesus didn't deny his miracles. They just crucified him for claiming to be God. And even though there are no eyewitness accounts that refute the life of Jesus that we have on record, it's still, I get it. You know, this is what the Bible says about him. But I'm not sure. For me, folks, the definitive evidence revolves around his own resurrection. Now, most historians will agree with this. That yes, the tomb was empty. If the tomb was never empty, we wouldn't have this discussion today. We would have probably a marked place where the burial of Jesus is, just like we have tombs of very famous people around the world. The tomb was empty, and history agrees that the disciples came to believe that somehow the resurrection had occurred. Now, how do we answer that? Will you come back in two weeks, please? Uh, because that's what I want. I want to talk a little bit about that. How do we answer that? And there's not enough time today, and it fits with the theme of the line. Two weeks, all right? Everybody raise your right hand. Oh, never mind, I'm just, I'm just teasing. I... <laughs> Two weeks, all right? We're going we're to come back to that because it's so important. Because if, 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 if he didn't come back from the dead, uh, we, we need to just go home. Because there's, there's no reason to be here. But if he did come back from the dead, it answers the question, about is he God in the flesh? Because only God could accomplish something like that. So, it's important. But here, here's the last question that I want to deal with. And that is, why should Jesus' claim to be the Son of God matter to us today? I realize that the answer to such an important question can be overshadowed by our perspective. You know, every one of us come with biases and, and perspectives and everything. And sometimes those perspectives, well, in any kind of a disagreement, perspective makes all of the difference. Just like the couple that was having a bitter argument while they were driving through the countryside. I mean, it was a, it was a bitter argument. And neither one of them was about to concede anything. As they rounded a bend in the road, they passed a barnyard full of mules, goats, and pigs. And the husband said to his wife in a snarky tone, relatives of yours? <laughs> yep. She shot back, my in-laws. <laughs> Perspective makes a difference, doesn't it? So, if you will allow me this morning, set aside your perspectives. Let's, let's just take a look at a perspective on this question that I hope, well, will give us a little bit of different insight. Now, as, a, as important as the, the considerations that we've talked about for the last few minutes are, they do not adequately answer Caroline's question regarding the issue of Jesus being a man and at the same time being God. That whole concept, folks, defies human explanation. I get that. It requires great faith. I get that too. So why even bother trying to understand the dilemma in the first place? Does it matter? And the answer to that is, yes, it matters. It matters greatly what we believe about Jesus and I've pointed this out in the past, but let me point it out again. The one thing you cannot say is this. Well, I don't believe Jesus was who he claimed to be, but he sure was a good man. You can't say that. It is illogical to say that. Because if he wasn't the son of God, if he wasn't God in the flesh, if he didn't come to be our savior, if he couldn't forgive our sins, then he was a liar in the first degree. And I'm telling you, somebody that can lie that way is not a good man person. And, and, and perhaps you, you say, well, maybe he was delusional. Well, then you explain to me 
How Jesus could confront and confound the intellectuals of his day. How he could speak with such incredible wisdom. How he lived a consistent godly life all the time. Because I'm telling you, delusional people cannot do that. So yes, it does matter what we believe about his claims. Just don't fall into the trap of saying, don't believe in him, but he was a good man. That doesn't work. And while my finite human mind cannot grasp the complexity of this God-man dilemma, it doesn't mean that I should throw up my hands and give up trying. I think there are some facets we can begin to understand a bit. And it begins with this whole problem of evil and sin. Now that's a word we rebel against today because we want to use it as a label only for the most egregious activity. When we think of sinners, we think of people like this. Joseph Stalin, Jeffrey Dahmer, Osama bin Laden, Kim Jong-un, Al Capone, Mao Zedong, and the list goes on and on. Those are sinners. Those are evil. Me? I'm a good person. I love my family. I work hard. I strive to be a good neighbor. I watch my language. I don't even kick the family pet. I'm not a sinner. Well, the truth of the matter is we are. Every one of us. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Sin means, the very definition of sin means to miss the mark. And every last one of us has missed the mark of God's expectations. Now, true, some have missed missed the mark by country mile. Others just barely miss the mark in the way they live. But the truth is, the bullseye remains untouched. If I'm stopped by an officer of the law for speeding, it means there's a consequence for breaking the law. Does that mean the police officer hates me? No, no. It just means he's got the right to uphold what the law says. And we can be over the speed limit by a whole lot, or we can be just barely be over the speed limit, but the speed limit is still breached, and there is still a consequence. So we conclude, you know what? You know what? If God would just get rid of evil completely, the problem would be solved, right? Mm, don't know about that. Th- th- there is a consequence to that that... We, we, we may not like. This brief video helps explain the consequence of that decision. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. 
This is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to a sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in his world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. If there's just a hint of evil or sin in us, we got a problem. God had a problem. God, but God had a solution that is incredibly unique. I'm glad God didn't eliminate all of us in the process. The alternate plan is that Jesus would suffer in our place so that we might escape the consequences. He paid the penalty we incurred so we wouldn't have to. Yes, the question often comes up, but there are a lot of people that suffer. There are a lot of people who suffer for a lot longer than six hours that Jesus suffered on the cross. And by the way, God kind of had the dack stacked on this one, didn't he? Uh, if God knew that he was going to resurrect in three days, I mean, what's the big deal about suffering for six hours on the cross? Good question. But here's where our assumptions miss the point. You're right if we suggest that the suffering was just a physical suffering. You're right that there are people that throw um, their lives away for someone else. What about the soldier that steps in front of the fire to protect his platoon and, and takes his life to save others? How is that different than Jesus, if at all? And, and why couldn't somebody like that just die in our place? Well, there's a good answer for that. Let's pretend for a moment that, that someone broke into your home and robbed you. And let's say the police caught the guy red-handed. No doubt about his guilt. He even confessed. He had your items in his possession. And yet at the trial, this is what happens. The judge declares the man innocent and then points to somebody sitting out here in the courtroom, a random observer, and sends that person to jail for the crime while releasing the guilty man back into society, free to rob again. Is that fair? Uh, not at all. That doesn't satisfy the law of the land that demands justice because that's not justice. And it's certainly not fair to the innocent observer. They're just in the courtroom listening to things. They didn't have anything to do with the crime. It's not even fair to you. You have been robbed. You find no satisfaction in an innocent person serving time while the real perpetrator might rob you again because he's free. We want justice for the wrong, but we get no justice in that scenario. But what if, what if the person who was robbed was both the person who wrote the law and is the judge of the court? And what if the thief's, what if the thief himself was the judge's nephew that the judge dearly loved? If the judge, who was a the offended party, sits in his courtroom protecting the law and says, nephew, you are guilty. 
but then steps down, takes off his judicial robe, and offers to pay the fine or to take his place in prison, that's justice because the law has been satisfied and the penalty has been paid. And it wasn't asking somebody else to step in to take the penalty that, well, uh, for the offense that, that was created to me. No, it, I am choosing to take the offense and pay for it myself. If God is the writer of the law, the ultimate judge, and the one offended by our sin, but who loves us and wants to give us a second chance, he would be the only one who could fairly pay the penalty and still satisfy the need for perfect justice. But there's something more about this whole suffering aspect. We always gravitate toward the physical. And yes, crucifixion was an awful thing. And yes, Jesus suffered on the cross and the beating beforehand for a total of six hours. But, but that's not the suffering that, that really is the point. In the Old Testament, the, 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 the Old Testament tells us that life is in the blood. It's not the physical suffering. It is what Jesus did that only he could do. It is a spiritual suffering. Life is in the blood. Oh, in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it says, For the life of the body is in its blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. Now, listen carefully. Stay with me here for the next few minutes, and then we'll be done. When Jesus died, he exchanged his blood for our lives, making purification possible. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to become sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is where the pain is. Can you imagine? The Bible says that God cannot sin. God cannot tempt. God has nothing to do with sin. And so here is God in human form living perfectly, completely as a total man, but he's still total God. And all of a sudden, this perfect life that Jesus lived is, well, he just begins to absorb all of our sin and our evil, our wickedness into his body on the cross until he has taken all of the toxin of the world upon himself and succumbs. Now, now, I cannot fathom that pain, but only God could take that kind of pain and deal with it. Let me see if I can describe it to you this way. Remember the Old Testament said life is in the blood. Do, do you realize that in your bloodstream there is this picture of the gospel that, that moves on? Every, every time your heart beats... Erythrocytes, or the donut-shaped red blood cells, only live for four months. But during that 120-day lifespan, they make 200,000 trips around your body, bringing life-sustaining oxygen. The body also contains 50 million, uh, 50 billion, excuse me, leukocytes, or white blood cells, standing on guard against intruders. So when an invading bacterium is detected, when there's an injury to your body... 
The white blood cells rush to the scene of the injury and they do this. The, the white blood cells individually begin to surround the bacterium and they absorb the toxin of the bacterium into their own white blood cell. And when they're done with that, they discard it. They go to the next one and to the next one until they have absorbed so much toxin into the white blood cell that the cell itself dies. In our blood, in our body, the white blood cell sacrifices itself to prevent death. The red blood cell carries oxygen, giving life to the body. The story of salvation and sacrifice is in the blood. The story of the gospel is coursing through our veins with every beat of the heart. No wonder the Bible says life is in the blood. But that isn't even the most incredible part yet. When God created red blood cells, he knew what would be their most critical mission in history. Author and physician Richard Swinson notes, How much blood did Christ actually shed? We have no way of knowing. But without a doubt, he shed at least one red blood cell for every human who ever lived. Mathematically, he would have accomplished that in his first few drops. And though that was accomplished in the first few drops that fell from the cross, our salvation demanded total sacrifice. I can't even begin to explain it. I can just tell you that only God in the flesh could have accomplished something like that. So what we believe about Jesus is critical. I can't explain it, but I cling to the bold statement of John the Baptist. Look, everybody. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.